0: Section 11 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one f section eleven chapter sixty five part two the dark counsels of the cabal though from the first they gave anxiety to all men of reflection were not thoroughly known but by the event such seemed to have been the views which they in concurrence with some catholic courtiers who had the ear of their sovereign suggested to the king and the duke and which these princes too greedily embraced they said that the parliament though the spirit of party for the present attached them to the crown were still more attached to those powers and privileges which their predecessors had usurped from the sovereign that after the first flow of kindness was spent they had discovered evident symptoms of discontent and would be sure to turn against the king all the authority which they yet retained and still more those pretensions which it was easy for them in a moment to revive that they not only kept the king in dependence by means of his precarious revenue but had never discovered a suitable generosity even in those temporary supplies which they granted him, that it was high time for the prince to rouse himself from his lethargy, and to recover that authority which his predecessors, during so many ages, had peaceably enjoyed, that the great error or misfortune of his father was the not having formed any close connection with foreign princes, who, on the breaking out of the rebellion, might have found their interest in supporting him, That the present alliances, being entered into with so many weaker potentates, who themselves stood in need of the king's protection, could never serve to maintain, much less augment, the royal authority. That the French monarch alone, so generous a prince, and by blood so nearly allied to the king, would be found both able and willing, if gratified in his ambition, to defend the common cause of kings against usurping subjects that a war undertaken against Holland by the united force of two such mighty potentates would prove an easy enterprise, and would serve all the purposes which were aimed at, that under pretense of that war it would not be difficult to levy a military force, without which, during the prevalence of republican principles among his subjects, the king would vainly expect to defend his prerogative, that his naval power might be maintained, partly by the supplies which on other pretences would previously be obtained from parliament partly by subsidies from france partly by captures which might easily be made on that opulent republic that in such a situation attempts to recover the lost authority of the crown would be attended with success nor would any malcontents dare to resist a prince fortified by so powerful an alliance or if they did they would only draw more certain ruin on themselves and on their cause, and that by subduing the states a great step would be made towards a reformation of the government, since it was apparent that that republic, by its fame and grandeur, fortified in his factious subjects their attachment to what they vainly termed their civil and religious liberties these suggestions happened fatally to concur with all the inclinations and prejudices of the king his desire of more extensive authority his propensity to the catholic religion his avidity for money he seems likewise from the very beginning of his reign to have entertained great jealousy of his own subjects and on that account a desire of fortifying himself by an intimate alliance with france so early as 1664 he had offered the french monarch to allow him without opposition to conquer flanders provided that prince would engage to furnish him with ten thousand infantry and a suitable number of cavalry in case of any rebellion in england as no dangerous symptoms at that time appeared we are left to conjecture from this incident what opinion Charles had conceived of the factious disposition of his people. Even during the time when the Triple Alliance was the most zealously cultivated, the King never seems to have been entirely cordial in those salutary measures, but still to have cast a longing eye toward the French Alliance. Clifford, who had much of his confidence, said imprudently, Notwithstanding all this joy we must have a second war with holland the accession of the emperor to that alliance had been refused by england on frivolous pretenses and many unfriendly cavils were raised against the states with regard to suriname and the conduct of the east india company but about april sixteen sixty nine the strongest symptoms appeared of those fatal measures which were afterwards more openly pursued de witt at that time came to temple and told him that he paid him a visit as a friend not as a minister the occasion was to acquaint him with a conversation which he had lately had with puffendorf the swedish agent who had passed by the hague in the way from paris to his own country the french ministers puffendorf said had taken much pains to persuade him that the swedes would very ill find their account in those measures which they had lately embraced that spain would fail them in all her promises of subsidies nor would holland alone be able to support them that england would certainly fail them and had already adopted counsels directly opposite to those which by the triple league she had bound herself to pursue and that the resolution was not the less fixed and certain because the secret was as yet communicated to very few either in the french or english court when puffendorf seemed incredulous turenne showed him a letter from colbert de the french minister at london in which after mentioning the success of his negotiations and the favorable disposition of the chief ministers there he added and i have at last made them sensible of the full extent of his majesty's bounty from this incident it appears that the infamous practice of selling themselves to foreign princes a practice which notwithstanding the malignity of the vulgar is certainly rare among men in high office had not been scrupled by charles's ministers who even obtained their master's consent to this dishonourable corruption but while all men of penetration both abroad and at home were alarmed with these incidents the visit which the king received from his sister the duchess of orleans was the foundation of still stronger suspicions lewis knowing the address and insinuation of that amiable princess and the great influence which she had gained over her brother had engaged her to employ all her good offices in order to detach Charles from the Triple League, which, he knew, had fixed such unsurmountable barriers to his ambition, and he now sent her to put the last hand to the plan of their conjunct operations. That he might the better cover this negotiation, he pretended to visit his frontiers, particularly the great works which he had undertaken at Dunkirk and he carried the queen and the whole court along with him while he remained on the opposite shore the duchess of orleans went over to england and charles met her at dover where they passed ten days together in great mirth and festivity by her artifices and caresses she prevailed on charles to relinquish the most settled maxims of honor and policy and to finish his engagements with lewis for the destruction of holland as well as for the subsequent change of religion in england but lewis well knew charles's character and the usual fluctuations of his counsels in order to fix him in the french interest he resolved to bind him by the ties of pleasure the only ones which with him were irresistible and he made him a present of a french mistress by whose means he hoped for the future to govern him The Duchess of Orleans brought with her a young lady of the name of Quayruall, whom the King carried to London, and soon after created Duchess of Portsmouth. He was extremely attached to her during the whole course of his life, and she proved a great means of supporting his connections with her native country. The satisfaction which Charles reaped from his new alliance received a great check by the death of his sister and still more by those melancholy circumstances which attended it her death was sudden after a few days illness and she was seized with the malady upon drinking a glass of succory water strong suspicions of poison arose in the court of france and were spread all over europe and as her husband had discovered many symptoms of jealousy and discontent on account of her conduct he was universally believed to be the author of the crime. Charles himself, during some time, was entirely convinced of his guilt. But upon receiving the attestation of physicians, who, on opening her body, found no foundation for the general rumor, he was, or pretended to be, satisfied. The Duke of Orleans, indeed, did never, in any other circumstance of his life, Betray such dispositions as might lead him to so criminal an action. And a lady, it is said, drank the remains of the same glass, without feeling any inconvenience. The sudden death of princes is commonly accompanied with these dismal surmises, and therefore less weight is in this case to be laid on the suspicions of the public. Charles, instead of breaking with France upon this incident, took advantage of it to send over Buckingham, under pretense of condoling with the duke of orleans but in reality to concert further measures for the projected war never ambassador received greater caresses the more destructive the present measures were to the interest of england the more natural it was for lewis to load with civilities and even with favors those whom he could engage to promote them the journey of buckingham augmented the suspicions in holland which every circumstance tended still further to confirm lewis made a sudden eruption into lorraine and though he missed seizing the duke himself who had no surmise of the danger and who narrowly escaped he was soon able without resistance to make himself master of the whole country the french monarch was so far unhappy that though the most tempting opportunities offered themselves he had not commonly so much as the pretence of equity and justice to cover his ambitious measures this acquisition of lorraine ought to have excited the jealousy of the contracting powers in the triple league as much as an invasion of flanders itself yet did charles turn a deaf ear to all remonstrances made him upon that subject but what tended chiefly to open the eyes of De Witt and the States with regard to the measures of England was the sudden recall of Sir William Temple. This minister had so firmly established his character of honor and integrity that he was believed incapable even of obeying his master's commands in promoting measures which he esteemed pernicious to his country. And so long as he remained in employment. Dewitt thought himself assured of the fidelity of England. Charles was so sensible of this prepossession that he ordered Temple to leave his family at the Hague, and pretended that that minister would immediately return, after having conferred with the King about some business where his negotiation had met with obstructions. Dewitt made the Dutch resident inform the English court that he should consider the recall of Temple as an express declaration of a change of measures in england and should even know what interpretation to put upon any delay of his return while these measures were secretly in agitation the parliament met according to adjournment the king made a short speech and left the business to be enlarged upon by the keeper that minister much insisted on the king's great want of supply the mighty increase of the naval power of france now tripled to what it was before the last war with holland the decay of the english navy the necessity of fitting out next year a fleet of fifty sail the obligations which the king lay under by several treaties to exert himself for the common good of christendom among other treaties he mentioned the triple alliance and the defensive league with the states the artifice succeeded. The House of Commons, entirely satisfied with the King's measures, voted him considerable supplies. A laud tax for a year was imposed of a shilling a pound, two shillings a pound on two-thirds of the salaries of offices, fifteen shillings on every hundred pounds of banker's money and stock, an additional excise upon beer for six years and certain impositions upon law proceedings for nine years. The Parliament had never before been in a more liberal humor, and never surely was it less merited by the counsels of the King and of his ministers. The Commons passed another bill for laying a duty on tobacco, scotch salt, glasses, and some other commodities. Against this bill the merchants of London appeared by petition before the House of Lords, the lords entered into their reasons and began to make amendments on the bill sent up by the commons this attempt was highly resented by the lower house as an encroachment on the right which they pretended to possess alone of granting money to the crown many remonstrances passed between the two houses and by their altercations the king was obliged to prorogue the parliament and he thereby lost the money which was intended him This is the last time the peers have revived any pretensions of that nature. Ever since, the privilege of the commons, in all other places except in the house of peers, has passed for uncontroverted. There was another private affair transacted about this time, by which the king was as much exposed to the imputation of a capricious lenity, as he was here blamed for unnecessary severity. Blood— a disbanded officer of the protectors had been engaged in the conspiracy for raising an insurrection in ireland and on account of this crime he himself had been attainted and some of his accomplices capitally punished the daring villain meditated revenge upon ormond the lord lieutenant having by artifice drawn off the duke's footman he attacked his coach in the night-time as it drove along st james street in london and he made himself master of his person he might here have finished the crime had he not meditated refinements in his vengeance he was resolved to hang the duke of tyburn and for that purpose bound him and mounted him on horseback behind one of his companions they were advanced a good way into the fields when the duke making efforts for his liberty threw himself to the ground and brought down with him the assassin to whom he was fastened they were struggling together in the mire when ormond's servants whom the alarm had reached came and saved him blood and his companions firing their pistols in a hurry at the duke rode off and saved themselves by means of the darkness buckingham was at first with some appearances of reason suspected to be the author of this attempt his profligate character and his enmity against Ormond exposed him to that imputation ossory soon after came to court and seeing buckingham stand by the king his color rose and he could not forbear expressing himself to this purpose my lord i know well that you are at the bottom of this late attempt upon my father but i give you warning if by any means he come to a violent end I shall not be at a loss to know the author. I shall consider you as the assassin. I shall treat you as such. And wherever I meet you, I shall pistol you, though you stood behind the king's chair. And I tell you in his majesty's presence that you may be sure I shall not fail of performance. If there was here any indecorum, it was easily excused in a generous youth. When his father's life was exposed to danger. A little after, Blood formed a design of carrying off the crown and regalia from the tower, a design to which he was prompted, as well by the surprising boldness of the enterprise, as by the views of profit. He was near succeeding. He had bound and wounded Edwards, the keeper of the jewel office, and had gotten out of the tower with his prey, but was overtaken and seized with some of his associates one of them was known to have been concerned in the attempt upon ormond and blood was immediately concluded to be the ringleader when questioned he frankly avowed the enterprise but refused to tell his accomplices the fear of death he said should never engage him either to deny a guilt or betray a friend all these extraordinary circumstances made him the general subject of conversation and the king was moved by an idle curiosity to see and speak with a person so noted for his courage and his crimes. Blood might now esteem himself secure of pardon, and he wanted not address to improve the opportunity. He told Charles that he had been engaged with others in a design to kill him with a carabine above Battersea, where his majesty often went to bathe. That the cause of this resolution was the severity exercised over the consciences of the godly in restraining the liberty of their religious assemblies. That when he had taken his stand among the reeds, full of these bloody resolutions, he found his heart checked with an awe of majesty. And he not only relented himself, but diverted his associates from their purpose. That he had long ago brought himself to an entire indifference about life, which he now gave for lost yet could he not forbear warning the king of the danger which might attend his execution that his associates had bound themselves by the strictest oaths to revenge the death of any of the confederacy and that no precaution or power could secure any one from the effects of their desperate resolutions whether these considerations excited fear or admiration in the king They confirmed his resolution of granting a pardon to Blood, but he thought it a point of decency first to obtain the duke of Ormond's consent. Arlington came to Ormond in the king's name, and desired that he would not prosecute Blood for reasons which he was commanded to give him. The duke replied that his majesty's commands were the only reason that could be given, and being sufficient, he might therefore spare the rest. Charles carried his kindness to Blood still further. He granted him an estate of five hundred pounds a year in Ireland. He encouraged his attendants about his person. He showed him great countenance. And many applied to him for promoting their pretensions at court. And while old Edwards, who had bravely ventured his life and had been wounded in defending the crown and regalia, was forgotten and neglected, this man, who deserved only to be stared at, and detested as a monster, became a kind of favorite. End of section 11. Chapter 65, Part 2. Recording by Jim Denison, J I M D E N I S O N Voice dot com.